You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Hello, and thanks for joining us for December's JNNP podcast. This month, delirium. The syndrome is common in hospitalised patients, particularly older hospitalised patients, and is bad news in terms of a range of outcomes. Yet as much as 75% of it can go undiagnosed, and there's little evidence to aid its measurement. Now colleagues at the University of Edinburgh have designed a device to assess patients for delirium, and earlier this month I spoke to the group's Professor Alistair McCulloch to hear how this could benefit researchers and also hospital clinicians. So hello Alistair, thanks very much for coming on. Hello. Could you tell me how much of a problem this is in older people who have been hospitalised? You mentioned in your introduction that it's linked to some poor outcome measures. Could you tell me a bit more about this? Yes, well, delirium is one of the most common acute problems that older people get in hospital. It affects probably at least one in five. It used to be assumed that delirium was a sort of benign condition which went along with other medical problems, And but once you treated those medical problems, the delirium would go away and it had no particular significance uh, itself. But unfortunately, lots of studies in the last 10 or 15 years have shown that delirium itself is a serious thing to get in terms of uh, increasing length of stay, risk of new institutionalisation and, and even mortality. Given that it's that it has these, these outcome measures and it's so important that uh, doctors diagnose it, what are the issues with, with making that diagnosis? Yes, well, it's traditionally very under-detected in hospitals um, and people have speculated a lot as to why this might be. It may just be that it's just not part of the, the routine training and, and skill set of, of doctors in acute settings to do the kinds of psychiatric assessments that are thought to be essential to make a robust diagnosis of delirium. I think also because of the pace of acute hospital care so that you know, sitting down with somebody and doing what might appear to be a five or ten minute assessment of the mental status just doesn't seem realistic. And even getting routine implementation of short, straightforward cognitive tests like the abbreviated mental test is very difficult. Okay. Is, is that your own experience? That you, I mean, you've seen people, older people hospitalised and, and clinicians just don't have the, the time or the skills to look into delirium? I think that's what people think, that they don't, that it's just not something they can deal with. But in fact, in my opinion, I think most delirium is actually quite easy to pick up once you're thinking about it, you know, once it becomes something that you are looking for in a patient, you know, a patient who's a little bit drowsy or who's a little bit difficult to talk to because they they find it hard to have a coherent conversation for more than about 30 seconds. That's the kind of rule of thumb I have. Um, or people who are a little bit suspicious. Because people with dementia but with no delirium very often are able to converse perfectly lucidly about topics they understand, you know, for, for many minutes or, or even longer. Right, okay. You uh, and your colleagues created a, a device to, to help with this diagnosis and, and you used the visual ad- attention deficits as, as factors to help with this. Well, why did you choose these factors to focus on? Delirium is a heterogeneous mixture of lots of different psychiatric features, including cognitive deficits. Uh, these might include the patient having hallucinations or delusions or changes in levels of alertness and so on. But the cognitive deficit, which is, I think, believed by consensus to be always present in delirium, is, is inattention. And 
it seemed to be the, the right place to, to start. Could you describe the device that you created to, to, to aid clinicians in actually carrying out these tests, just so they can imagine you know, what they have in their hands at the bedside and, and how they actually carry out the tests? Okay, well, it's about the size of a hardback book and it has two lights on it, which are basically buttons that you can press but also have lights. And there's two small LED lights that can shine up and cause a distracting stimulus in the middle. And the lights are about two centimetres by two centimetres and it's battery powered and it's programmed away from the device. So the device is is self-contained, it's not plugged into anything. And it's got a very simple appearance. It's really just a, a nondescript grey box with two lights on it. Yes, I like how in your paper you said you designed it to be old-fashioned so that it would sort of be acceptable to, to people of that generation. Yes, well, we, we, we thought we would like to have some kind of device or piece of software that allowed us to give the stimuli in a very stereotyped way, you know, so there'd be no pressing buttons by the investigator it would just all be programmed and, and uh, automatic and we thought about using laptops but in acute hospital settings laptops are not the best devices because they're prone to being damaged or dropped and I think they also look quite intimidating to somebody who's really feeling unwell and can barely concentrate on what's going on around them intuitively we just felt it wasn't going to work so they, we decided to employ a local electronics company to make us this little device so when you came round to, to trialling the device, you had three groups, those who had delirium but not dementia, those with dementia and those who were cognitively normal. What did you find? Were you able to distinguish between uh, those with delirium and dementia with the tests? Yes, for, for most of the tests, there was a very clear difference between those with dementia and those with delirium, with those with delirium showing very poor performance. The tests were really designed to be cognitively extremely simple, so basically asking people to count the number of times the light goes on with gaps of two to four seconds. The lights were on for about one second. The shortest was five lights, and the longest went up to 14 lights. So we knew that people could just about do it, count three lights with those types of longish gaps. But really the test was just to get at this problem of sustained attention that we'd noticed clinically that the patients with delirium really had. But we found that patients with dementia were able to do this task very well. The only thing was when we started to increase the level of distraction with the red LED lights, that started to to cause deterioration in the performance of the dementia patients. But with the simpler tasks, uh, the hypothesis was borne out. Great. Did you find that that patients were actually able to, to complete one or more of the tests you didn't have some kind of dropout rate where the patients were just too unwell to complete any of them? Yes, we did find that, because we did eight tests like this, and in retrospect, it was too many. And we got very close to 100% completion for the tasks in the earlier part of the testing phase, but this dropped off you know, as, as the time went on. And we're, we're continuing with the work now, and we've definitely revised our protocols. I'll just say, lots of patients with delirium are also very drowsy and unable to do any kind of cognitive testing and they're actually very important in clinical terms because uh, many of the tests that we use just don't classify such patients because they're just regarded as untestable but they're actually many of them actually have the more severe forms of delirium. We didn't include these in the study because anyone who wasn't able to do the initial practice wasn't included. Do you think these are the patients that clinicians really should be 
spotting immediately though you know you know look at someone who's that unwell and you can pinpoint that they have delirium well that's that's a very interesting question and it's one that i'm trying to test empirically that somebody who's drowsy do they always have delirium uh, not everyone agrees with that but it's a hypothesis that we're trying to test by measuring alertness in using a different scale that we've written and then just seeing if such patients fulfill criteria for delirium it's a difficult area because then it all it brings into focus the whole semantics of what the word delirium means and whether somebody who's in a stupor or who's just very drowsy you know what what is that condition is that part of delirium or is it a distinct uh, set of abnormalities but i think it's certainly very important to treat it as a patient with a very sick brain that needs urgent help certainly okay given that you've shown that the these tests and also the device are clinically useful. Do, do you have any further plans for it? Do you plan to make the, the box commercially available? Yes, well, we're actually lucky enough to be awarded a grant to make a second version of the box, which is much more programmable. At the moment, our aim is to make a tool that's, that's going to help research studies have much more quantifiable measures of the attentional deficits in delirium. But I don't think it's impossible to think that, you know, in the medium term that we'd have a commercially viable product which uh, might be used in certain clinical settings. And another option we're considering is developing a software version that could be used on tablet PCs like iPads because we think that there would be a very fast increase in the use of such devices in routine hospital care. We're already seeing that in some hospitals. So and if we can produce simple enough stimuli and without use of keyboard, just simply looking at the screen and giving verbal responses, then that's certainly an option we're very strongly considering. We were encouraged by the results. that They were better than we'd expected them to be. And it made us think that perhaps the the area of measurement in delirium has is, is not really been looked into enough. The whole topic of the neuropsychology of delirium is, is tiny in the literature. I would say less than 20 studies. I think there's actually just a big job of work for science to do to work out what are the deficits and are there subtypes and how can we measure them because I think once we have a better understanding of of, the, of these deficits from a quantitative objective uh, point of view then we'll be able to develop better tools for clinical diagnosis and monitoring as well as critically for trials. Great and then finally these sound like very useful practical things for the future but would you have any advice for clinicians working in hospitals now about how to 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 make that early detection and, and diagnosis of delirium if people just are aware that the brain can go wrong just like other organs and that this the signs of the brain go wrong are not a high creatinine or any uh, st elevation but just a change in behavior i suppose if that's seen as analogous to acute kidney injury the doctor will be expected to look at all the potential acute causes that might have have triggered off the AKI, but also to do everything they can to optimise conditions for the kidney in terms of blood pressure and oxygen saturation and removing toxic drugs. And it's actually almost the same as the treatment of delirium, that you just have to try and optimise conditions for the brain. Doctors are pretty good at managing it. I think the problem is just not thinking of it at the beginning, not doing routine cognitive screening. And about a quarter of patients in acute hospitals have serious cognitive impairment, that is dementia or delirium or both, then there's no way around the fact that we need to 
be doing routine cognitive screening and assessment of alertness in, in all patients in, in, who are coming into our hospitals. Otherwise, we're just going to miss huge amounts of serious pathology. Great. Thanks very much for, for coming on and, and telling us more about your research. Thank you. That was Professor Alistair McCulloch and his papers, of course, published in JNMP and available freely at jnmp.bmj.com. If you're a patient or relative who's concerned about this issue, or you know someone who is, there's a lay summary of the paper up there too, and the site will link you to everything else going on at JNMP, including our blogs and Twitter feed. That's all for this edition. Come back next month for more neurology, neurosurgery and psychiatry. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.